we've been having some problems lately. And I'm not talking about microphone sound technical problems. <laughs> we've been having some problems uh, at home lately. And when it comes to getting our daughter, Lily, to do certain things. For instance, when we say, okay, Lily, it's time to get dressed. She takes off running down the hallway, uh, pantsless, right, in the opposite direction, giggling and laughing the whole way down the hall. When we say, stop playing with your water at the, at the table, Lily, she does one of these sidelong glances and then pours out as much as she can really fast before I, I yank the, the water away from her, you know, her, her rebellious intentions. We've actually experienced this enough that uh, uh, Molly and I are starting to wage a little psychological uh, warfare at home. See, uh, instead of telling Lily what to do, we say things like, you're not going to eat those broccolis, are you? No, no, you wouldn't do that. No, no, don't, don't do it. And she does. Surprisingly, I mean amazingly, she eats them. Some of the time, anyway. I'm told that what we're experiencing is actually a, a well-documented and uh, well-known phenomenon called psychological reactance. Psychological reactance. In essence, it's that knee-jerk reaction we have negatively when we're told that we have to do something. Uh, it's the reason that you kind of bristle when your manager tells you to do a certain task. Or why, as a, a teenager, when your mom said, you know, put on your coat, it's cold outside, you didn't. Now, just because. Even though these things are good for us to do, uh, you resist them. Because it feels like your autonomy is being threatened, right? Like your freedom is being kind of squished. Well, in our story today, in the Exodus, we see this kind of knee-jerk reaction as the people respond to receiving God's law. I first quickly agreeing to it, but shortly thereafter, blatantly breaking it. But maybe that makes sense, right? I mean, it is the law, after all. Maybe this kind of psychological reactance was just hardwired into them. Maybe they didn't like being told what to do. But what was God really after in giving them the law? That's what I want to explore with you today. What the law is and what it isn't. What this whole law thing is really about. So our story today picks up right off the heels of, of the great exodus event, right? That great deliverance, where the Israelites saw God's mighty hand come down against the Egyptians in plagues and in power. And now they've come to the wilderness of Sinai, to God's mountain, and God comes down again, but this time to His people to speak to them. And God says this, He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Stop. Stop right there. Do you see what comes first? Before God speaks anything about obedience, what does God say? He says, I carried you on eagles' wings. God depicts himself as the mighty eagle swooping down to to deliver salvation to his people. But here's the question. (laughs) What did the Israelites contribute to their salvation? Did they fight for their salvation? Right? Did 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 they run away from the Egyptians? Did they even walk? No, God says, I carried you. I carried you. They contributed nothing to their deliverance. God first says, I have already saved you. I've carried you on eagle's wings to myself. Therefore, now, obey. So we see here already what the law isn't about. The law isn't the basis for our salvation. The law and following the law does not get us to heaven. It doesn't get us favor in God's eyes. It doesn't get God to love us. He already does that. God already loves his people. He proves it right off the bat. And that's worth appreciating because that's really different. That's unique from all the other religions on the face of this earth. Every single other religion out there will tell you that that you must do what is right and live right, and then you'll experience acceptance and love. But not our God. He shows us right here and, and all throughout Scripture, but very clearly here, that our salvation and our acceptance is not based on what we do, but on what He has done. Not our works, but His work for us. Well, it might cause you to to ask then, it might cause you to wonder, why should I obey the law at all then? Right? If it's not the basis for salvation, what's the point in keeping it? But you see that that question, it reveals that it's not just every religion, but every human heart, including those in this room, that think that same way, that it must be what I do that gives me acceptance or, or blessing in this life. We, we think that, that if we don't receive those things by keeping the law, why do it? And by asking that, well, we show just how unique God is, right? That we misunderstand the heart of God. And we probably misunderstand the law then as well. It wasn't given to save us. So then why was the law given? 
Well, this same key verse in Exodus 19, it actually supplies us with three answers. Uh, the, The verse continues, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Three things. If you obey me, you shall be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, all three of those things are pretty important. They're kind of loaded phrases. But I'm just going to hone in today on, on just the first one, because that's the one that intrigues me the most. Why was the law given? Why do we have the Ten Commandments? What's it for? To make us God's treasured possession. To make us God's special love. But wait, didn't we just finish saying that that the law is not about getting us God's love, right? That, That the basis of God's love for us is not from the law. Well, that's right. God already loves us, and He obviously already loved the Israelites. That's why He carried them out of Egypt. That's why He saved them. So what does this mean for the law to make us God's treasured possession? How do we understand this? Well, I'll give you just one uh, example. Uh, think about when you have fallen in love. Right? The idea of falling in love, right? When you fall in love, and when you really start to love somebody, if things are going right, you do something. You start to research. I'm not talking about uh, Facebook stalking uh, exactly, uh, but you, you, you start to research, right? Uh, you start to look into what is it that this person that I love, what is it that they're, they're interested in? What is it that they like? What, what delights them? And you wouldn't word it this way, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to find out what is this person's will? What is it that they most want that delights him or her? And then you give it without being asked. You, you, you give it. It's not coercive. You want to please them. You just you give it to them. And the reason it doesn't feel coercive is because when a relationship is a love relationship and not an exploiting relationship, but in real love, You place your joy and happiness into the other. In other words, their being happy is your happiness, right? Their being overjoyed is your joy. Just to be in their presence and them to be delighted, that's that's a gift to you. And so you research. You look at the things that they like. Note them, right? Note to self. That way you can... Show them to them, impress them, please them. When God says, obey me so that I can treasure you, it doesn't mean so that I can accept you, right? He's already done that. So, so what does it mean? Well, just look at the way the Ten Commandments start, right? This comes later in Exodus. God, uh, Moses gets the tablets from God. He comes to share them with the people. But God doesn't jump right away into, you know, do this. Do that. Honor my name. Have no other gods. Keep my day holy. 
No, there's something that comes before all of that. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, God starts out saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See what he's saying? God is saying, I have listened to the deepest needs of your heart. I heard you crying out in your misery, in your oppression. I heard you and I came to you. I delivered you. Now, reciprocate. What I'm showing you in the law is what delights me. I delight in justice and honor and integrity and in love. Put your love in my happiness. Here it is. I've, I've laid it all out for you in these commands. Do this, and you will be my treasure. And the word treasure here, it's an interesting word actually in the Hebrew. It's the word segula. And it's a very specific Hebrew word that means the private wealth of a great king. This is what God is saying his people will be, the private wealth of a great king. And if you think about ancient times, back then, uh, the king owned everything, right? I mean, when you became the king, you just, you owned it all. You owned the roads, you owned the buildings, you even owned the people, right? And that could be a bad thing, depending on the kind of king you had, because the king could just say, yeah, you know, kill these guys, they're mine, I can do with them what I want. But this word, this word segula, this word uh, treasured possession, is not talking about all of those things that the king owned. It's talking about a private wealth. Uh, it's talking about uh, a special wealth. Uh, these would have been objects of beauty that the king kept in his own private quarters, that he delighted in and doted upon. God says, Obey me so we can have a special relationship of intimacy. Obey me so you can know that I'm treasuring you. Well, the Israelites, long story short, they fail to treasure their father. You heard them accept the terms of the covenant. They, they say, all that the Lord has said, has commanded, we will do but they don't. They agree to this relationship. Moses sacrifices the animals on the altar, right? He takes the blood of the animals and he sprinkles it upon the people there to ratify the covenant, which sounds really gross and weird uh, to all of us, but that was also very common back then. When you made this kind of agreement, you would show uh, what would be the consequence if either side didn't keep up their side of the bargain, right? You are saying, may this happen to me, this sacrifice, this bloodshed, if I don't keep up my end. That's what the blood of the covenant means. And these Israelites didn't uphold their end. In a few short chapters, they'd be erecting a golden calf and bowing down to worship it. 
I mean, breaking the first several commands that Yahweh was pretty specific about. But these Israelites failed, but there came one who didn't. And he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And not out of obligation to the law, but out of love for the Father. He had been with the Father from the beginning, from before all worlds. As the Gospel of John puts it, chapter 1, verse 18, he was in the bosom of the Father. Jesus was there in the heart of the Father, resting in his love, resting in this close relationship from eternity. Jesus knew that he was loved by the Father. He says it over and over again in the Gospel of John. Uh, Chapter 3, he says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Chapter 5, he says, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Jesus comes and fulfills the law, but look at what he says. He says, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. That's what the law is about. It's about love. And Jesus loved the Father so much that he delighted in being obedient to him. Even when that obedience led him to the cross to pay for the blood of the covenant. You know, that's why he says that, right? It may go over our heads when we hear those words, but when the disciples were gathered, those those group of Jews were gathered with Jesus in the upper room, they were very familiar with the Exodus account and what that covenant meant, what happened there at Sinai between Israel and Yahweh. So they knew the gravity of what Jesus was saying when he said, this is the blood of the covenant. This cup that I am going to drink, the cup of God's wrath, this is the blood that I will take and pour out on your behalf. But Jesus, he went willingly to that cross because of his love for you. Because that's how God's love works. His deliverance comes not as a result of our works, but because he values us. And because we are his treasure. So what do you treasure? What do your actions say about what you value in your life? Who or what do you love? We don't have to keep the Ten Commandments to earn God's favor. You already have it. How will you respond to God's deliverance in your life? I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon uh, something called psychological reactants, right? That knee-jerk reaction we have when we're told we have to do something. 
You know the trick to conquering it? It's changing the way we talk to ourselves and changing the way we think. Instead of thinking you have to do something, tell yourself you get to or you even deserve to. And by simply changing the dialogue, you empower yourself. You're not being told what to do. You're choosing to make time for something that matters to you. The law is not a list of have-tos, but get-tos. Because we have a God who has delighted in us so much that He has shared with us what delights His heart. May you and I be people who carry out the law in love, not because we have to, because we get to, in response to the one who has loved us with an everlasting love. In Jesus' name, amen.